everybody. Welcome to episode 268 of the Running Rogue podcast. This is your host, Chris McClung, coming to you from a chilly day in Austin, Texas. And I'm very excited. I've got another guest this week as we continue this little unanticipated mini-series on speed. We're going to be talking with former guest of mine. This will be her sixth time on the show. Sasha Gallish is joining me. She was last on in episode 162, where we were talking about her competing at the World Championships and the Marathon in Doha in 2019 in what ended up being a really challenging hot day. Uh, she had to drop because of the heat for that day. But if you want to go back and get a little bit of backstory on Sasha, you can go back to episode 162 or you can go back to my first episode with her, with her which was 118. But she's also been on 131, 144, 145, and is a good friend of mine and an elite athlete who has competed at the highest levels in our sport. So I'm happy to have Sasha back on. It's been a couple of years since we, since we caught up. And this time we get to talk about her as a master's athlete. She just turned 40 in December and just in February broke the world indoor record for the mile for 40 plus year old athletes. While that hasn't been ratified yet, it is on its way to being ratified. And I'm excited to talk to her about staying fast as she pushes beyond that 40 year old threshold like so many of us. So we'll get to that in a moment. Before we get there, I've got a couple of things. First, just wanted to give a shout out to Kerov, my long-term partner. They're going to be partnering with me and sponsoring this episode. And we'll be talking more about my partnership with them and giving you an offer code to go check out Kerov. You can go to their website, takecareof.com if you want to check it out, but I'll be talking more mid-episode about that. Secondly, I've got a listener question for you that I think was a good one that comes on the back of the medium long run episode I did recently, and this one comes from David. He actually slid into my DMs with this question on Instagram. He asked, can two-a-day runs substitute for medium long runs? Say five miles at lunch and six six miles in the evening, easy pace with some strides. Just found your podcast, love it, listening to your medium long run episode. So thank you for that question. It's a really good question, David. And the short answer to your question is no. Two days cannot substitute for medium long runs because you're not getting the same benefit. The real benefit from a medium long run comes in those later miles to the run. There's actually an exponential benefit aerobically the longer you're out there. So it is not a linear relationship based on the miles. So if you just do five and then do six, add those together to get 11, that isn't getting you the same benefit of if you just ran 11 miles all at once, because the real benefit comes in those final four miles or so of the workout where your aerobic engine has been primed and then it starts to really do its work to expand that aerobic capacity that's happening in the latter parts of those medium long runs, which is why if we can extend those medium long runs, we get exponential bang from our buck from a couple of incremental miles there versus adding a couple of incremental miles somewhere else within our week. So the unfortunate answer to your question is no. Two a day doesn't work, doesn't count. And you're going to get the most benefit from your mileage in general by doing long single runs versus doing two-a-days. In my coaching philosophy, two-a-days only really fit when we get to much higher volumes and we need to add that second run in order 
to get those extended volumes. And for me, that means typically until you're above 70 to 75 miles a week, we shouldn't be talking about two a day runs. And, and so that's the short answer to your question. The long answer to your question though, David, which is probably what you're getting to is what if I don't have time for a 10 or 11 mile medium long run and I can only fit it into two blocks? Well, first of all, we know that those two runs aren't replacing your medium long run based on what I just discussed. So then the question is, how do I get the most I can from the medium long run given my time constraints? And so if that means I can only get in an eight mile medium long run instead of a 10 mile medium long run in one go, then that's what you need to do. You need to stretch that six mile run in the evening to eight to try to make it a true medium long run, or if possible, obviously stretch it to longer than that if you can. But if you're dealing with time constraints, stretch that, stretch that run as long as you can within your constraints. And sometimes that for some people might mean worrying less about the mileage and worry about just getting a time block in. So maybe instead of thinking, I need to get eight miles in for this medium long run, you have 75 minutes and you go get get in as much as you can in that 75 minutes or that 80 minutes or 90 minutes in order to fit it into your schedule without worrying so much about the volume. Because another question people will ask me is they'll say, well, if I, if I'm time bound, should I just pick up the pace in order to get in certain mileage during that medium long run? And the answer is no, you want to maintain the integrity of the effort, which means it should be easy, just as David mentioned. And then you want to get as much time on your feet in that window that you can. So if it's six miles, get six. If it's eight, get eight. If it's 10, get 10, build to the highest level you can within the context of that medium long run over time to get the full benefit. Now, another corollary to this question that people might ask is, what if a one-off day pops up where I can't get in the full medium long run? I need to split that into two runs. What I would tell you is don't do it. Get in as much as you can in the one run and then move on to the next day. Don't try to squeeze more mileage in by adding another run later in the day, especially if that's not your rhythm, if you're not already in a two a day rhythm, because it's not going to work for you. That is where we start getting into a realm of just pure junk mileage. There's nothing that can be gained from that second run because it's not an aerobic capacity building run if you're doing a shorter run later in the day. So in those one-off situations where you just can't get in your normal mileage for the medium long run, just get in what you can. Something is always better than nothing. Move on to the next. Don't worry about trying to squeeze into two a day unless that's already an established part of your pattern. And then the next question will be, well, where do two days fit? And as I mentioned, one, they only fit when we start to get to really high volume levels. And two, typically what they do in the context of those high volume levels is become essentially a recovery run at the end of the day after a quality session. And so for me, when I was doing two a days, trying to get to 80 miles a week in some of my marathon training blocks, my second run would be on workout day or perhaps on medium long run day as a very easy recovery effort so that I'm ready to roll the next day. So that's typically where 
those two days will end up fitting as more of a recovery type effort than any effort that tries to accomplish purpose beyond that. So there you go, David, that may be more than you wanted from that question, but I hope it helps as you're putting together your program. Okay, now let's turn to my conversation with Sasha Gaulish. I'm super excited to have her on again. She is a elite level distance runner from Canada who has competed at distances from the mile all the way to the marathon and had success at all of those levels. Go back and listen to those old episodes with her. I'm excited to have her back on. Let's bring her on. Here we go. Welcome, Sasha Gaulish, back to the show. It's been over two years since we've had the chance to talk on the podcast. I'm so excited to chat with you, catch up. We're going to let the listeners be a fly on the wall while we catch up some, but then also talk about your amazing new not yet ratified, but new world record in the indoor mile for 40 plus. Pretty awesome. Old. How are you? I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you're not as old as me, so there's that. I can't, I mean, I can't catch up, right? Like it's just the way <laughs> the world, the way biology works. I can't catch up. <laughs> Thankfully for you. <laughs> always be older. You'll always have that. Right. So I, I'll always be able to do my part to make you feel young. <laughs> But how are um, you? It's been a long time. I want to first catch up on just life and then we'll talk about your recent training in air quotes and recent racing, not in air quotes. So first, let's just catch up. The last time we chatted on the podcast would have been December of 2019 before the world turned upside down. Mm -hmm. You had just come out of the marathon from hell or in hell in Doha at the world champs in 2019, where it was 8 billion hot. degrees. Just hot. <laughs> and, and yeah, we caught up after that. You were also at that time, newly minted in the academia world, but I know that's changed. So everything is new and different. The world has turned upside down in these two years. So catch me up. I mean, I'm great. I, you know, that conversation seems like three months ago, you know, right. Just skip two years of the <laughs> pandemic. Doha feels like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Uh, we, I mean, I didn't get to race a ton during the pandemic here. Um, I was active in different ways. I ran, we had really tight restrictions. My mom is an ICU doctor and you know, my parents are older and we knew that this virus was affecting older people. And so the beginning of the pandemic was pretty stressful for me. Um, my mom was like, of course, I'm going to go work in the COVID ICU. This is my calling. This is what I'm going to do. And I was like, but <laughs> so, uh, you know, she's fine. She's great. Um, they've actually just closed the COVID ICUs here, which is a really good sign for things returning. I worked at U of T. Um, as a professor for most of that time since we chatted, I've since left that job as well. Um, <laughs> That's the University of Toronto for those that need. Oh, right. Because University of Texas, right? Canadians, Celsius, Fahrenheit. <laughs> I mean, we would never call it U of T, but UT here and University of Toronto there, U of T, UT, close enough. Same, same, but different. So, you know, things have been great. Um, found some new sports. Uh, found some new ways to get fit. Uh, I did not have a dog when we last chatted. I was That's looking right. at adopting one. Uh, 
we have her. She's lovely. She's adorable. She's a Jack Russell in a bully breed body. So she's got serious attitude, which is probably why I love her so much. Perfect. Uh, yeah. Not the running dog. I thought she would be mostly because she looks at me with attitude and is like, I hear you calling my name. <laughs> I don't care. I'm going over here. So um, not sort of the trail running dog. I thought I would get, but maybe one day. I think for a quick summary, that about does it. Yeah. And yeah, Toronto was, I have another good friend in Toronto. You know her as well, Amy mm-hmm. Jessup, who would tell us the stories about the severe lockdowns you guys had. I mean, we had it at times here, but there was nothing like what you guys had for extended periods of time. How did you stay sane? I don't think I did. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Fair enough. Um so I moved out of the city and I think that helped a lot. So I, you know, feel quite fortunate. We have this lake house and I've pretty much lived here for the last two years. The really cool part of it was a whole bunch of people that have places here as well also moved up here. And I mean, very early on in the pandemic, I did the Aravapa virtual half marathon and they all came out and supported me. So they were either riding or cheering and it, was great to watch that kind of community come together. So, okay. I don't actually remember the question you just asked me. (laughs) How did you stay sane? I would say based on the fact that I forgot that I did not. So, you know, (laughs) uh, community, um, accepting where things were at and how good I had it. So, you know, one of my friends here has a gym in his garage, which I could use. He let me buy a treadmill and put it in there. I have access to it anytime I want. Uh, I bought Nordic skis last winter and figured out how to ski in the woods. I bought a pair of skate skis this winter. So I think just trying to make the best of a challenging situation. And when we could, and when we were allowed really trying to get together with the Toronto running community when I went back, but I think in a way we all figured out virtually how to get together and we're all really excited in Toronto to be getting together in person um, again, I mean, we, we are literally just coming out of, we're like three and a half weeks out of lockdown, um, and just trying to navigate what that actually looks like for everybody. Yep. And you're running, you mentioned obviously other, (laughs) other sports, but how did your running go during that time? I went pretty well. So I ended up going to the under armor sunset tour in the summer and running some Okay, 1500s. Um, I found the only pothole on the Long Beach boardwalk. Um, <laughs> You're good at that. Broke my ankle. Um, so yeah, so I was, you know, it was as good as it could have been. I think, given the circumstances, I think, you know, I maybe did a dozen total track workouts last spring before I really got into racing. We just we didn't have access, so it went as well as it could have given what I had. Which was not a lot. No. (laughs) What was it like going from the marathon back down in distance to racing 1500s again? I mean, because of the pandemic, it was kind of lonely again for a bit because we just, we weren't even allowed to train together. Um, I missed the long runs of the marathon. I didn't miss the long, lonely workouts. I think there's fewer people in and around us in Toronto in particular doing that kind of training. I think more people are doing it now that the, you know, restrictions are easing. So it was just sort of easier to get back on the track. And then, I mean, 
putting on the super spikes is just like the most <laughs> fun thing in the world. You're like, wow. Yeah. Um, and you know, the, you know, sort of putting my engineering hat on when, you know, you have these shoes on just how cool it really is. Um, so yeah, I was like, I really love those short, painful, hard intervals that leave you gasping for air. So it was, that part was wicked fun. Hmm. And that, those, that's your roots, right? That's, that yeah. was your foundation in running is short and short and fast stuff. What, yeah. what, which, which are you mentally more drawn to now marathon or, or mile? Both. I oh, think. Okay. Yeah. You know, I've been criticized for not focusing on one or the other. And at the end of the day, I think I'm done. I know I'm done chasing times. I'm just in it for the fun and to work out really hard. And so if my focus is just having fun, it doesn't matter what the distance is. And so now I can have it all again. <laughs> You're greedy. I like it. I am greedy. I don't have kids. It's the reason I don't have kids. I'm greedy with my time. But you were chasing a time. We'll get to that in a second. You were chasing a time. So to be fair, you were chasing a time. Okay. So I want to talk about Nordic skiing for a hot minute because I'm about to go it's our spring break here next week. And I'm about to go skiing with my kids and my wife's not a downhill skier. She doesn't like it. She's tried. She's actually not bad at it, but she just can't wrap her head around it from a fear standpoint. She can't get over that part. So it's just not fun for her. So she's like, Hey, we should go do Nordic skiing. Let's do a lesson. And I don't know anything about it other than, you know, what I've seen watching the Olympics and Jesse Diggins crush it. Yeah. But tell me about getting into that. Sure. Okay. So I'm laughing a little. So your poor wife, Amy, needs to know that the downhills on Nordic skis are far more terrifying than the downhills <laughs> on downhill skis because you're not attached and they're skinny. Right. Um, just, as, just as a warning. Um, <laughs> but my downhill background obviously helped with that. So uh, coming back to the beach and the community, we got it. So a whole bunch of us bought um, backcountry Nordic equipment, I guess, because I was so light, they all got the backcountry boots and I got these hilarious boots with no ankle stability. And so I learned to ski by, I didn't do anything. I just like showed up at my friend, Chris's backyard. He's like, okay, we're going up the hill. We're going into the trails. And all I did was like slide backwards for the first five minutes. And then I <laughs> sort of like figured it out. Um, I watched a lot of Jesse Diggins uh, over the two weeks of the Olympics. I yeah. watched every Nordic biathlon Nordic combined event, which was my instructor for both skate and classic. So I've never taken a lesson. Classic definitely resembles running more. The challenge is, is that you go into this like kind of partial squat and you lean forward, which for me in running is terrible because as a downhill skier, my background is to like, I'm the most comfortable in a quarter squat. Most people are like, my legs are on fire. I'm like, oh, this is the best position ever. <laughs> um, so just kind of being aware of that, like transitioning from Nordic skiing to running, but go try it. I mean, like, even if you're out there for an hour sliding around one year, you'll never work your core harder in your life. Like you will have the best <laughs> beach body ever. Um, that's just something different to try. And I, you know, I had two goals this winter was one to learn how to skate ski again. I did it 
as my teammate said, he's like, oh, you should remember. I'm like, yeah, it was 25 years ago when I did it in high school. So I had two goals to learn how to skate ski um, and to learn how to use Python definitely further ahead in the skate skiing, but the, the Python skills are, they're coming along. I'm on lesson 12 of 17 in the like intro to Python. I don't know any of these terms. First of all, just explain classic versus skate. I, I literally don't know the difference. Okay. So one is like skating as it sounds like ice skates, like you would be skating. And then the classic is the one that kind of looks like a shuffle. And so, um, kind of like you would slide your socks on the floor. <laughs> Are they the same skis though? No. So different they're skis. really different. Um, and the boots are really different. So the, okay. uh, um, the classic boots have way more ankle stability. You want them stiffer, right? Cause you're pushing off and, you know, in a lateral way where the classic boots, the ankle support isn't, you know, necessary, particularly in track skiing. You really want the ankle support in the backcountry when you're going down these hills that you need the ankle stability for. Um, but you're primarily moving just in a, um, in a linear pattern, sort of in a sense, shuffling your feet back and forth. Right. And what's Python? It's a programming language. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> okay. Come on. I knew I'm that. Big, I thought you were somehow talking. Of course, I'm a nerd. I, I thought you were talking about skiing with that. I'm like, no, what is, no, no. how is that connected to this? <laughs> Every I take a snake out with me, right? Like why, I. Why are you learning Python? <laughs> what? You just because is this a hobby? You're just gonna pick it up? Uh, secretly, um, all of the readiness scores that are in this black box. My goal is to try and write an algorithm that's open source and like I'm years out from doing this that anybody can input their data in. I think one of the challenges with readiness scores right now is that you can't actually input how you feel when you wake up, and I I think that's a detriment. And then and not in addition to that. You know, like I look at my readiness score and it's like, look out for the amount of physical activity that you did the day before. And I'm like, yeah, compared to the average person, I do a lot, but compared to the average me, this is pretty normal. And so I'd love to figure out a way to create an open source algorithm that everybody can, you know, manipulate so that it gives them the best sense of who they are. Okay. This is fascinating. So you're talking about <laughs> your aura ring, I'm assuming here. Yep which you wear in your finger. It's tracking HRV, heart rate overnight. I talked about it recently in, in an episode on technology. Gives you an output in the morning that it's not asking you how you feel. It's telling you how you feel, Sasha. Nobody tells me how I feel. <laughs> the aura ring, in fact, does not tell me how I feel. But yes. It's telling you how ready you are and what your sleep is and all of that's essentially an algorithm based on that underlying data. And... I told people in a recent episode, which you may have listened to, to ignore it. Agreed. Because it's not really accurate and and it's an algorithm. And I would get dinged for doing, quote, too much exercise all the time. Right. So I totally had to ignore it. But there are other reasons to ignore it. The underlying data actually was pretty good if you know what to do with it and how to interpret it, how to use it especially if you're looking at trends instead of maybe one-off data points. But but yeah, let's talk about it. Let's talk about how you, because I actually stopped wearing my aura ring. I haven't Same. talked about it, but I stopped wearing it. So you tell me first, what caused you to stop? Back to sanity. So in August, I was wearing an Apple watch and I had just purchased an aura ring because I was interested in the data. 
but I actually felt shamed by the data. So I would like open up Apple Fitness and it would be like, you've only watched 22,500 steps today. <laughs> Yesterday, you took 33,000 steps, like step it up. And I was like, okay, this is a problem that if I'm opening my phone and looking at this app and feeling bad about myself, I was not in a great space mentally for a whole host of reasons. And I was like, okay, I have control over this and I don't have a good relationship with the data. I'm not really training for anything right now. I actually happen to be really sick. So I probably should have left the aura ring on. Um, I ended up with kidney infection is the very short story. Um, but I took all of the technology off and put it in a box. Um, I actually ended up giving my Apple watch to my dad because my mom had an AFib event. So technology can be good, but I just recently put my aura ring back on with a very different plan on how to interact with the data. So my, I don't look at the sleep score. I don't even look at necessarily, um, how much it says I had, you know, deep sleep or REM sleep. Like I know the nights when I've had good sleep, I'm in general, a good sleeper. We've talked about that before, but I'm really curious about, um, not just HRV and heart rate, but the temperature and how my, my temperature varies through my cycle. Um, and I think a lot of, there's a lot of research that's going to come. That's going to be very helpful for female athletes and females in general, as we understand how things work through the cycle. And so if I'm not tracking it and being part of the solution, I just didn't feel like I was being a good data scientist and always just remembering that I don't have to interact with the data. And so if I'm having a day where you know, like either of imposter syndrome or, you know, I'm not feeling confident. I just don't open the aura app now. And I where before I wouldn't be able to do that. So I had to change my relationship with the data. Tell me your story. <laughs> well, it's similar. I would say that there, if I were to summarize, there are two primary reasons why I stopped wearing it. Well, three, really, if you count the upgrade situation that they were trying to make me do, which I got frustrated by, but the main two, one is that I felt like after two years, I'd worn it for almost two years, that I had gotten the insights that I needed. Right. So that I didn't need it anymore, essentially. Okay. Which is great. Right. The impact of alcohol, the impact of all the different variables on my quote readiness or my HRV scores. I felt like I had collected the data that I needed and calibrated that with how I felt and my intuition and felt like I had a pretty good sense for what I had learned. Second reason was exactly your reason. And it's interesting when I first started wearing it, I didn't have that challenge in that I could disconnect from the readings, knowing readiness wasn't accurate and sort of, and sleep wasn't accurate and, and, not really care and just drill into the underlying data and, and learn what I needed to learn. But over time, for some reason, in the final months of me wearing it, I had gotten like you're talking about where I'd become a little bit too obsessed with it. It was affecting my mood. It was affecting how I yeah. felt. It was affecting my sleep because I was thinking about it right. instead of just sleeping. And I think part of that was correlated with, there was a time when at the end of last year, around when I did Boston, where I was mal, I had some micronutrient deficiencies, which I eventually discovered that was affecting my sleep. So I was having some yeah. challenge sleeping, which meant 
that when I looked at the scores and they were low, it just compounded things. And so it wasn't a healthy time for me to be looking at that when I was already struggling with it. So I took it off, let it go. And I haven't looked back since, still have it, but haven't put it back on since probably November of last year. So it's been four, four months or so without it. And I'm happy. It's not to say I won't go back because I do think the underlying HRV data and RA data, respiratory rate, temperature. I mean, when I got COVID in the summer of 21, it told me I had COVID before I had COVID essentially. And so I think there are some useful elements there, especially if you're in a training cycle, but for now I've taken a break. And I think you highlighted how important that is, right? I think no device can ever tell you how you actually feel and nor should it. I mean, unless you like, okay, I did have a friend once who was like, I have indigestion. And it was like, no, no, you're having a heart attack. Then you got to listen to the doctors and the devices where you're having a heart attack. Okay. But generally speaking, and you know, the big challenge with these and whoop actually had this initially, and I don't know if it actually calculated it as part of your score was it doesn't ask you how you feel. And we know that that affective component is so important. And so I never, you know, and, you know, I've had discussions with people and they're like, well, what if it says your readiness score is low? Like, are you going to take a day off? And I'm like, no, like as with any workout, regardless, you go to the warm up and you do it and you, you know, in a sense, have a conversation with your legs. And it's really important to be able to feel your body that way. Cause I think one, you can prevent a lot of overuse injuries. Cause you get like a tingle somewhere and you're like, Ooh, hold. Right. Um, and two, you know, again, it's one algorithm for all of us. And we all, we know we're all unique, right? Like we, we talk about how teachers have such a tough job, right? They have, you know, 30 unique people in a classroom. So why would you then put a device on yourself and say, this is perfect, right? Like, you know, like there's a mismatch in information. So yeah. So I definitely don't use the readiness score. I don't even use the sleep. Like I can wake up in the morning and be like, did I sleep well? You know, I sort of need to like two sips of coffee and it's actually Matthew Walker. Actually, I just learned this from, it's not the caffeine I need to wake up. I wake up in the morning and I'm so cold. And which is normal, right? Like you're, you're cold when you wake up and then like, so it would be any hot beverage where just then you get like a warming in your belly and you're like, oh, I'm much more awake now. Um, cause our bodies are de- definitely cooler when we're sleeping. So, um, sort of after, you know, that sort of 20 minutes where I'm a little bit warmer, I can be like, oh, you know, I feel rested today. And even if you have a bad sleep and you're like, I don't feel great. It doesn't mean that you, you know, can't hit a big goal workout or that you, you know, can't hit that target at work or it's just to be conscious of like the holistic and be like, okay, well tonight I need to make sure that I do the things in my sleep routine so that I do get a good night's sleep so that you're not falling further and further in the hole. Right. I, you know, I think that's the other problem with it when you're like, oh, I've got this one bad night of sleep. I need to like change my whole life. It's like, no, you don't. You got one bad night. Like you'll be fine. Right. Yeah. Prioritize sleep and recovery after that. You'll be fine. Yeah. So if you're asking yourself how you feel, and that's an input, then why does the readiness score even matter? Why can't you just listen to how you feel? Oh, I don't need the readiness score. That's just like me giving advice to other people. I look (laughs) at the readiness score and I'm like, you are so wrong. No, I guess what I'm asking about is in the context of you creating a Python-based system to give readiness score where that would be an input, what would be, how would you make it different? 
other than just adding that input. But then if you have that input, does it matter the algorithm that sits behind it? Does that make sense? It does. I think one of the big challenges right now is that it's a it's a black block black box system that only the engineers there understand. And it's written in one way. I was watching a presentation from a really good data conference um, this morning. And I think collecting the data and having that is worthwhile. One of the interesting studies that Trent Stellingworth recently did was where people get overuse injuries and the correlation with underfueling. And so I think it's, you know, collecting those readiness scores over, you know, like this is 10 years out over a substantial amount of time might help future practitioners predict when people are going to burn out, right? Like I think we might be able to actually predict mental burnout because of physical burnout or vice versa. And if you, if you don't have something, then you can't know. And not to say that you have to measure everything, but I just, I think more information, you know, so, so data to knowledge, to create wisdom. And I think we're just sort of lacking in the wisdom right now, you know, and okay. So your readiness score, like, as I'm thinking about it, like, it doesn't track your nutrition, right? Like if you, you're, you could have slept well, you know, done all the things, but if you didn't eat anything the day before, and it says that you've got a readiness score to go, like you're going to eventually crash, right? Because you're, you're under fueled. So like, there's another gap in the system. And I guess it's to say, you know, how can we bring all these things together? Because, you know, I think a lot of people do rely on that data as they're trying to learn about themselves and how they feel, right? So that they can have a more informed conversation with themselves. Right. And so essentially what you're saying is we need more transparency as to these algorithms because you may not know how your unique situation might be affected in the black box. Like you were saying, if you're more active than baseline and that constantly dings your readiness score, but if you knew how much that was a factor in the equation, you might be able to make some modifications or even the sleep score the same. You know, I'm an, I was, my wife, we we both have aura rings. She is a rock of a sleeper. You know, once she's out, she doesn't move. Right. I am an, I'm an active sleeper. I, I move around. And, and so I would consistently be dinged on my sleep scores for that because it would tell me you're awake because it thought I was awake and moving when I wasn't, I was just moving in my sleep. Right. But, but her sleep scores were, were always good. (laughs) because she's just she's like in the coffin position all night long so anyway it just but but there was no way for me to account for that and truly know that how much that was affecting my sleep scores even though I might have had a good night's sleep it might have just been essentially a bad algorithm you're just having a wrestling match with yourself and for you that's (laughs) recovery that's normal that's normal okay I so as long as we're talking about data, before we get into your indoor mile record, got to talk briefly about my partnership with Care Of. They are a vitamin and supplement company that I use to help me get everything I need for performance. They are a company that makes it really easy to figure out what's going to work for you specifically. They are not a one size fits all approach. What you do is you go on there and you fill out this short in-depth quiz about your health 
and lifestyle goals. And from there, they will give you personally tailored recommendations based on your answers to help you figure out what specifically you need. You can also go on there and search for specific things if desired to build a pack that's personalized to you that has the vitamins and supplements that you need to be the best version of yourself. Really, really easy to do. They include good for you, clean ingredients in everything they do, and they'll also tell you the exact science behind every potential recommendation they give you. I love them because they make it really easy to remember. I just grab that daily compostable pack, take what's in it, which includes things like for me, vitamin D, ashwagandha, fish oil, things like that to make sure that I'm optimizing for performance so that I can be the best version of me. And I've been at a place where I got behind on some things and now they're helping me catch up. So to take advantage of my offer with them, go to takecareof.com. Use the code ROGUE50 for 50% off your first order. That's R-O-G-U-E-5-0. Go to takecareof.com. Use the code ROGUE50 to get 50% off your first order. It is that simple. So go check it out. Okay, let's get back to my conversation with Sasha. Sasha, earlier, you mentioned the shoes, the super yeah. spikes. I've never worn a pair of super spikes, but I did just recently get a pair of super shoes okay. for the road that's, that Saucony gave me their Endorphin Pro Plus. And so I've been wearing it a little bit just to see, and I've done track workouts in it. I mean, it's, I would estimate it's giving me at least a second in a 200 meter repeat to have yep. those shoes on. You can feel the pop. I would assume you've run in both road and spike version of the of the super technology what's the impact you said it was an amazing feel i think it's the recovery so i can't remember who said this to me it doesn't even matter i mean i think it's this has been quoted in the research now that you know it's not just what you put into the spike or the shoe but what it gives back to you right and in a sense you're everybody's running economy and running efficiency improves i mean like I said this to someone I remember at the Berlin marathon, like sitting across from a guy at dinner. He's like, I just got the super shoes. I'm like, it's the cheapest coach you'll ever buy. Cause if you misstep in a super shoe, like you're just like putting a spring and launching the wrong way, right? Like all of a sudden everybody has to run more economically. And so, you know, I think people who are newer to running or have, let's call it poor form for lack of better words right now, really benefit from the super shoe. And then those of us that are more seasoned runners, like for me, what I really feel is like every step is just easier and you get more back from the shoe than you give it. And what do you think the time difference is? Uh, I, okay. So time, I can't tell you, but I would say that. So I, I think there's responders and super responders. And so um, depending on the shoe, I think I can be a super responder. And I think a super responder is anyone who responds between 10 and 14% faster than what they would not run in a conventional shoe, let's say. Um, and same for the spikes. And then I think, you know, sort of like the average person responds in like a four to 6% range. And so kind of got this four to 14% range where, where people are responding. It's a lot. It's cool. I, you know, like I get it. Like <laughs> it's a lot. there's a lot of conversation about it, but you know, from an engineering perspective and, you know, thinking about the biomechanics of it, it's really cool. 
it is cool and impressive and good in many ways that all the brands are kind of there doing it in their own way and in a way that makes the playing field more level if you're at Different. at the front but playing field's different now <laughs> yeah the playing field very different yeah what i think the challenge you know i think some of the conversations about it in the media is we've we've gotten to this point where we're wowed by all these fast times, which are happening at the collegiate level and beyond. And we're trying to compare that to the all time lists with all this, all these superlatives and you can't (laughs) truly, right. It's it's apples and oranges at this point. But Um, I struggle, I struggle sometimes with the fact that the running media isn't willing to acknowledge that. Right. I mean, it's, it's simple. I mean, look, Grant Fisher, amazingly talented athlete, mm-hmm. but he is not running what he's running in a 10 K without the super spikes. There's just no way. Agreed. And so, um, so I don't know if you've had the opportunity to compete on that indoor track in Boston. It is like, it's a super track, right? Like it's, <laughs> it's the, it's like, it's so much fun to run on. You're like, this is phenomenal, right? Like you can have a bad day and be like, oh my God, I PR'd. Um, So, and I'm listening that Boston track's been around for a while and I think it's always produced fast times, but I guess where I'm okay with it. And I guess I mostly ignore the media stuff when they sensationalize it. Cause I'm just like, I don't care about the sensationalization of it is it is exactly as you say, it's an apples to oranges comparison and they're just different. And then if you actually took the times and sort of like did the math on them, the, the times are, you know, pretty similar. If you take away the the benefit that these shoes offer and like everybody responds. And like, now that there are all these different companies have shoes, like just go find the shoe that works for you because you're going to respond and to say that, you know, like I'm a traditionalist and I don't want to wear them. It's like, great, no problem. But like, then you're not going to get the benefit. Right. Like, so I don't, I don't train in them a lot. Um, so when I was an Alpine ski racer, right, I wouldn't train in my downhill suit because I wanted to like benefit on ski race day of like being so fast. Right. Um, so it's kind of the same thing. Like I don't really, I don't train in my super shoes. Um, I'll put them on to make sure I don't explode my legs and calves. <laughs> right. right. Like It's like, there's a balance and also for the feel, right. <laughs> so that half marathon I ran in um, Vancouver kind of two weeks before the mile, my biggest challenge was I couldn't find my feet and it actually had nothing to do with the shoes, but I'd been running the whole winter on snow and a treadmill. And then all of a sudden I was on the road and I just like the whole time I felt like a baby giraffe. I was like, what, where do my legs go? <laughs> um, and so there's something to be said for the feel, but you know, I agree with you. I don't, you know, I think even you look at Mo Ahmed who finished right behind Grant Fisher, who took 26 seconds off his time that's the new shoe. Right. Right. Like it's, I think, and, and again, not to take away from Mo or Grant or any of the elites and how they're training, but there is a benefit and, and they're continuing to work hard and it's really amazing, but we can't pretend that there's no benefit from the shoe. Like right. my engineering hack goes, of course there's a benefit. Yeah. I mean, I've heard high level coaches say a second to a second and a half uh, a lap? For, for a lap. Yeah which, you know, seems about right. And, and so it's fine to me. It's like, there's nothing wrong with wearing those spikes at this point. You have to, to, to compete, but 
wholesome because they're so much fun. You have to acknowledge it. On the recovery side, one of the things that I'm curious about, especially for marathoners, is you're doing a long run with pace, mm-hmm. some sort of workout, and you're wearing those shoes. You're going to have the ability to recover differently, obviously, than if you were wearing normal shoes. Mm-hmm. So there are real questions that are where the answers are evolving as we speak about how does this actually affect your ability to train mm-hmm. and coach and the workouts you can do and how that fits and potentially how many marathons you can run in a given mm. period of time and still peak. I mean, Sarah Hall version of that we're seeing is, you know, I can do three marathons in six months according right. to her plan between Tokyo, Boston, and then the world champs. I'm not fully convinced yet as a coach that that's really the way to op- still optimize, you know, that you can go from marathon to marathon and expect to peak, have peak performances at each, each one of those. Right. I'm not ready to say that yet, but there's definitely a difference in how you can train with them. And I think we're all figuring it out. Yeah. And you know, like, let's think of like kind of abstract out and like break apart, like what we, what we're doing in training. And so, you know, they're all little muscle tears. Right. And so if you're not getting all of those little muscle tears because your shoes are offering a little bit more, let's call it resilience, maybe in your training, maybe you don't get quite the same training effect. And so I think it's a balance of both, right? And and picking the times when you wear the super shoes, partly for feel so that you don't get to marathon day like I did in Vancouver and like, where do my legs go? Um, but also, you know, Sarah Hall's a very different example, right? She's trained for a really long time. She's broken her muscles down a lot. She's got an incredible reserve of like physical training in her muscle and, and body that most of us don't have. And so balancing that, let's break down the fibers to make you bigger, faster, stronger, right? However, you know, sprinter, mid-distance, long distance, you want to look at it. And 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 I think it, you know, the best athletes are going to be the ones that use all of them um, to their benefit. So, you know, let's say, for instance, right? Like you're a physician, you're going to do, you're like working out with your team on Sunday and you've got, you know, a long workout. And then Monday, you got to be on your feet all day. You might want to put the super shoes on because you know that your recovery is going to be a little bit compromised because we all have a real life outside of who we are running. Conversely, you do your workout on Saturday and you know that you're going to have you know, a lot of recovery before you have to like spend some time doing whatever, maybe that's the time that you like push yourself a little harder in conventional shoes. And, you know, cause you can have a little bit more of the, you know, tear down and then build up again. So I think it's figuring again, we're all unique. I think it's figuring out what works for you in your life. The other part of the equation that I think people forget about is certainly there's the neuromuscular element in that. Yeah. You're wearing the super shoes, you're theoretically less broken down, you can recover more quickly. But there's still the aerobic piece mm-hmm. of, of the equation where you 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 still aerobically need to recover from a hard effort. Yeah. And I don't know that we always account for that when we're talking about this 
this ability to recover from super shoes. So add in the, add in the effective too, right? Right. The super shoes aren't going to help your brain recover. Right. So there's, so those are the pieces of the equation that I think, you know, there, there are a lot of people making assumptions that we can yes. do more because of the super shoes, because of the neuromuscular element without accounting for those other pieces. And I'm not personally convinced as a coach, although very open-minded, but I'm not personally convinced that we can dramatically rewrite the rules about how many big workouts you can do or how, what kind of workouts that you can do in order to get optimal results. But I'm learning and we're all learning because it's literally changing in real time. Agreed. We're all learning back to the data point. I think this is why we need to collect the data, right? Like what can we uncover from all of that, that helps us make informed decisions in our own training. Yes. Now let's talk about your training and your race. So 438, you break the record mm -hmm. for 40 plus by six seconds, indoor mile record. First of all, did they have to look up what a mile distance was in Canada when you were doing this in Toronto? <laughs> Because normally it's the 1500. Uh, okay. <laughs> Hilariously, the person who was like helping me with my mile was like, ah, and I was like, it's 200 meter track. Like the second we pass the mile start line, just use that as the 200 meter, like, <laughs> what? And he's like, oh, I was like, I'll make it the last nine meters. Like I'll figure it out. Right. Um, yeah. They, you know, uh, the starter <laughs> went to the wrong spot. Like it was, there were some funny moments. Yeah. 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 Okay. yeah. Okay. But it made but you know, that only helped, right? Like it would like relax the whole atmosphere. Yeah. So, okay. So take me back to the, when did you get it in your head that you wanted to go for this? Um, sometime in the middle of COVID, it's a bit of a blur. I was like, so I sort of had this idea that when I turned 40, that like all of a sudden, like you become a master, right? Like you wear a business <laughs> suit every day, you go to the office, you don't play around anymore nothing changes. You wake up one day and you're like, oh, I'm 40 now. Nothing's different. Right. And I guess I was like, well, I kind of know what I ran last summer. Let's go see what these indoor records look like. And I was like, I want to do that. Then of course our whole system shut down. And I was like, well, this approach will be very different. So probably, honestly, probably sometime in late November, I was like, huh, turning 40. Let's see what we can do this winter. What's your mile PR? That's a great question. Fourth, 30 or 431, like not sub 430. So somewhere in the 431 range. Okay. And mm -hmm. so you look at that 444, 40 plus masters world record. And you think I could do that. Yeah. Kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so then how did you prepare? You said your training was very <laughs> unconventional. So what did it look like? Uh, so very quickly in December, our whole like province shuts down again. So I was like, okay, I'm going to train for this properly. I'm going to do this, this, and this workout. And I was like, well, that's out the window. So I was like, okay, when can I do this after the tracks open up? So I think the track opened up on February 5th. Um, so I was there day one doing a workout, of course. So I think, um, before your race. Mm -hmm. So I did no specific training for this. And I think very quickly, you know, sort of late December when things really weren't good here. I just was like, I'm going to go for it if we can get tracks open, because I think it would just be such a bright spot, not only in my life, but other people's lives. 
and also just a very different way of doing it. So I, as much as I could before I kind of got tired of training on the treadmill this winter. So I was really bad at it to be honest. And so I would do as many workouts as I could on the roads, which sort of would work out to be like one or two a week, depending on what the weather was like. Um, but I skied a lot. So I skied almost five or six days a week. Um, on top of trying to run five or six days a week. Um, and in early January, I actually went uh, out to Fernie, BC uh, with my parents and there was no running there because it just puked snow the entire week and was minus, uh, okay, so minus 30 Celsius. So like minus 11 Fahrenheit, like it was just, it was too cold to run. And there were again, Omicron, so nothing was open. So very non-traditional, non-specific uh, buildup uh, to the mile. So I did three, two or three track workouts. I can't remember now before the actual attempt, nothing, nothing like, uh, that put me in the hurt blocker. <laughs> what were your road? What did your road workouts look like? Uh, it depended on how much pavement was available underneath the snow. So intervals, there's this hill right by my cottage. It's about a, um, mile and a half jog um, which is usually snow covered until you get to the hill. And then depending on, well, so then also depended on the wind, but you can kind of get up to three minutes of bare pavement on a hill to run on. Yeah. So my longest interval was three minutes. My shortest <laughs> one was 15 seconds. The three, three minute hill repeats. And what, what, what would your flat workouts look like? No flat workouts. No flat workouts. No, because there was too much snow on the road. <laughs> so, yeah. okay. So I think as masters athletes, myself being one as well, we all have this clock that we think is sitting on our shoulder that's yeah. counting down yeah. very rapidly to the time when suddenly we're not going to be fast again or anymore. Right. And we all think that's coming now or that it's already hit zero and we're just screwed. So how do you feel about your speed at 40? Uh, super shoes are great. Um, I feel, <laughs> <laughs> so, so it's a little bit of both, right? Like I'm really confident in where it's at and I'm, I shouldn't say I'm surprised, but I am surprised but I love it. And I think continuing to practice it is really important. I think regardless of what event you're training for that throwing speed in and for the clarification, speed being anything between sort of one, you know, anything less than 200 really, um, where you're really trying to make your legs go fast. I think it only makes you a better runner for whatever you're doing. It's also, if you don't like it, it's over really quickly. So just like kind of suck <laughs> it up and get over it. But I think it's really fun. It's like being a kid again, in a sense. Um, so the one, so I did two weeks before my mile attempt, I did run a half marathon, which really had no specific training. Um, and I ran a 114, which I was really like, again, really happy with. Like I, I, I didn't expect to run that fast in a sense. Like there's always like, in me, this like comparison to my past of like, I should be running that fast, which is a terrible way to live. And, you know, some of the stuff I'm working through, but when you just kind of 
put yourself out there, which I did in the mile and absolutely explode, which was so awful and so much fun all at the same time. Hmm. But I, I think, you know, as masters runners, we are the ones that limit ourselves as opposed to our bodies. Like we, we put these limitations in our brains to say like, Oh, I'm older. I can't do this. And it's like, but why, you know, like for the first time in history, like we've had, you know, the best access to food, um, you know, our diets, generally speaking, are really good. Like, why should we be limited when we've had, an, you know, access to all of this stuff that keeps us young? And, you know, like the person who was pacing me, like literally pace was like, I know I'm running a master's record with like trying to help you break this master's record, but then had this moment of like, but you're not 40. I'm like, no, no, I actually have to be 40 to do this. <laughs> He's like, I just don't think of you that way. And I guess I don't think of myself as 40 either, right? I'm always, I guess, in a sense, trying to like keep my kid at heart very ever present. And and I think that helps take the bounds off, right? Like you're not going to go up to a five-year-old and be like, how fast do you think you're going to run your hundred? It's like, let's go raise a hundred. Yeah. Well, and I think, because I get this question all the time, I coach a lot of athletes that are in the master's range and beyond my oldest athlete is about to turn 70 amazing and still crushing it and i Love think it. you know like i said we all have that clock on our shoulder that we think is somehow coming for us the grim reaper so to speak <laughs> of our speed and yet it's just not real for the yeah. most part i mean at some point it happens but it's yep. but it's always way further down the road than you think and yep. And, and in many ways, it's not helpful to even think about it because it only gives you constraints that aren't helpful versus, versus what you're saying, which is like, who knows what I can do? I'm just right. going to do the work and see. And right. then magic will happen. And oftentimes you'll surprise yourself. So I do think as masters, the mental side of the equation is almost as important as the physical side. I don't think that's just for masters athletes. I mean, I think we're, you know, we know that from all athletes, I think put, so keep that clock on your shoulder in a sense, but let it be a positive, right? It's amazing that I'm doing these things. It's amazing that I can still do these things. And just to continue chasing after the things that, you know, bring you joy and satisfaction in your life. And so that can change over time as to what that is either based on time or activity or whatever, but using the clock as your friend as opposed to your nemesis. Yes, agree with that. The, the other thing I think about with this result for you is that you didn't do any specific training really, right? No. Three workouts in the final, or you know, a handful of workouts in the final three weeks, a lot of skiing to stay fit because that's what you had. So what we're really talking about is a result that was built on the work you had done before that. Yeah. And you've got a long history of aerobic development at high levels, at high volumes. You also, having done a little bit of this work with you, you're also someone who's always kept the short fast, mm -hmm. as you alluded to, the sub 200, I think in the context when we did it together and when you were here in Austin was we were doing 30 second pickups inside of a 10 mile run or something. 
And so you've always kept that part of the equation, you know, that can come in the form of 30 second pickups inside a run that can come in the form of strides that can come in the form of 200 meter repeats. That part of the equation has to never go away. Yeah. And you combine that with volume and a little bit of specificity at the very end and boom, we have it. We have a master's world record, but there was no magic formula. There was no specific build. It just happened. Yep. Because of that history. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not pretending that like, oh, I just did this out of nowhere. Like there's, there's a lot of specificity in a variety of different ways. And, and also, you know, like I got a tattoo the last time, not the last time, the two times before when I was in Austin and it says, what if you fly? Right. And it was just a reminder to always take the risk. Right. Like I stepped on the track and I was like, well, what's the worst that happens? I missed the record. Great. We'll do it again. You know, I, and and embracing an event that way. So you had an Instagram post that reminded me a little bit of a recent episode. I talked about fear. You're talking about fear versus fun and how you were trying to operate from a place of fun instead of fear going into this race. So talk about that. Uh, Brené Brown says I'm scary when I'm scared. <laughs> I've been pretty scary for the last two years. Hmm. Um, I don't know when or where, and it happened sometime in my PhD, I think. I became very afraid that I wasn't going to hit certain milestones in my life, which is really weird because I don't live my life that way. And I don't know what happened or why. And then when COVID happened and my mom was working in the ICU and one of my biggest fears in life is losing my parents. Like it's inevitable. Again, I can't catch up to them in age. We just talked about that. Um, But I wasn't and you're never ready, but in a sense, like I was like, I'm not ready for this now. And then, you know, what if I get COVID or anyone else in my family? Like, I just been really afraid for the last two years, right? Like when you told me you had COVID, I was like, so afraid that something was going to happen to you. And not only is it no way to live, but it's, I couldn't ask my mom not to work in the ICU. She loves it. Like, why would I take away something that she absolutely loves to do? Like, that's a terrible way to live, to not be able to do the things that you love to do. And so when fear comes knocking, I recognize, I don't pretend it's not there. I recognize it. I invite him or her into the room, depending on who the monster is that day. We have a little conversation and we find the silver lining and I'll have moments where like my life is still going to be dictated by fear. Cause I'm still a human, right? Like I'm not a robot. Then I'll make mistakes and I'll, but that mile was the most fun that I have had racing in a really long time. And it was a really like good reminder about why I got into the sport and why I love the sport so much. So take me into the race. How did it go? How did it feel? It felt great till 300 meters to go. <laughs> so I asked to go out in about 430 pace and was basically like clipping the heels of my pacer and feeling like, really awesome, really strong. In terms of specificity, one of the things that you do have to train is that moment of discomfort and how you work through it and push through it. And I just didn't, not that I, I guess didn't have time um, in a sense, right? The first time I went to the track wasn't the time to do it because I had to like adjust to being on the track or I would have like potentially injured myself. And then the following week, um, I kind of went into that discomfort. Like you have to do it a couple times. And so basically with 300 meters to go, the wheels just like 
my leg stayed at 300 meters. The first thing Raul said to me, who's my partner at the end of it, he was like, it's the worst two laps I've ever seen you run. (laughs) (laughs) And I was like, I think I love you. (laughs) And he, you know, he meant it from a place of like absolute admiration that I put myself out there doing it. Yeah, you went that deep. It was, I absolutely exploded with 300 meters to go. And I (laughs) loved every second of it. So you struggled home to that 438, uh, coming off of a 430 pace at the beginning, but you got it done. You got it done. You must have been so relieved to be at the finish line when you got there. Going, so you have to go buy it, right? Like 300 to go, you got to go buy it once before you get to like stop. And I was like, "Uh uh-oh, this is really going to be bad. I mean, you're also in a fishbowl in a sense, you know, small track, everybody's watching. (laughs) Well, no, so nobody's watching because we're not allowed to have spectators. Like we, you know, we were still in very much like capacity limits and and all this other stuff. So thankfully there weren't any people. (laughs) Plus it's a master's meet, like who cares? Right. That's amazing. So (laughs) what was your reaction when you saw the clock? I couldn't see the clock. I couldn't see. <laughs> I actually just had to breathe. I, yeah, I had no idea what my time was. I think I was like, please tell me I did it. Please tell me I did it. And they were like, <laughs> yeah, like, of course. And I was like, I don't know. I can't see. My legs hurt. <laughs> That's amazing. Mm-hmm. So I think you were asked afterwards in an article running Canada that I saw, you know, what it felt like. And you said it hadn't set in yet at that point. Now we're three weeks later. Has it set in yet? Yes. And no, I think until it's ratified, I, it's not real until it's ratified. It's not real. The best part of records is knowing that they're going to get broken and like everything else in track and field between the, the changes in the training and the super shoes, it's really cool to see what's happening in masters athletics and how the times are coming down. And, you know, 20 years ago, if you had said, you know, someone being competitive in their forties, they would have been like, you know, as again, I'd be in my business suit walking into the office. Like you didn't, you didn't train and race like this, right. It just, it wasn't even on the radar. And so it makes me really excited to think about what's going to happen with that generation of young athletes that goes, I don't have to do this in my early twenties. How can I build the most robust and resilient body, mind, heart to be the best athlete I can be? Well, I mean, don't see the floor to them yet, Sasha. One thing I love about this result for you is, well, one, it was surprising. It's like, what did Sasha do? I was just <laughs> scrolling Instagram like, what did she do? But what, what thing I love is that, you know, the last my last memory of having a longer conversation with you was talking about that, that terrible race in Doha because of the conditions. And to, you know, two years later, have this happen at a completely different distance. It just made me so happy for you to have a result like that. Thanks. You were due. You've been due. Um, I mean, this will make you happy. I want to run a marathon again. Well, that's what I was curious about. So what is next? So what's actually next? I don't know. There is a <laughs> blizzard outside my window. 
Right. So all I know is until the snow melts, I'm maximizing my time on skis because when the snow is gone, the snow is gone. Um, I think I'd like to try and run a 10,000 on the track this spring just to run a 10,000 on this track and then fall marathon. Um, okay. Where I don't know when fall. Um, <laughs> Valencia is kind of like the, like, I love Valencia, like Spanish wine, Spanish food. I'm like, yeah. yes. Now you're thinking, right? But keep yeah. it fun mm-hmm. and see what happens. But it's, I love the fact that you're not closing off that longer distance Beca- because why can't you have it all? Mile to the marathon. Why not? Yeah. I mean, we have a club called Mile to Marathon in Canada, of course. Uh, I will definitely jump on the track and do some 1500s this summer too. Like yeah. they're, they're just too fun not to do. But it's another important lesson for the masters among us that you can't let go of that shorter stuff. You got to yeah. keep doing it. Keep racing. It doesn't have to be 1500. I know that can be intimidating for marathoners and especially the adult athlete who may not have a lot of those opportunities, but 5k, 10k. The full end of the range. Yeah. Um, I think I'm going to run an 800 this summer too, again, because I was really disappointed in last summers. Wow. Okay. So you're, you're going lower. even lower. You're going even lower. I love it. All right, Sasha, I've actually got to wrap this discussion, but I know I want it, which is sad because we go on forever, but just give me, give me a nugget for the, a nugget of inspiration for the, the masters among us who are already inspired listening to your story of getting this world record that we too can be faster as a master. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, like plaster that to yourself, although maybe not tattoo it. I just read the power of regret. Um, I would say challengers, like the big thing I learned this winter is challenge yourself to do something that's outside of your comfort zone. You'll have a lot of fun along the way. So you're going to go Nordic skiing on your ski trip next week. That's you getting outside of your comfort zone as a master. But instead of thinking about it, I'm going skiing to learn to ski. I'm going skiing. I can't wait to see what I learned from this experience and how I can bring it into the other things that I do in my life, where it's just going to make me a better version of myself. So keep trying new things. Don't be afraid to experiment. I love it. Yeah. All right, Sasha. Thanks so much for taking the time. This has been great to catch up. We'll have to do it again soon. Okay. Bye, Chris. Sasha Golish, everyone inspiring us all to be faster as a master, whether you're already there or on your way. We will wrap this episode here. To take advantage of the offer mentioned earlier, go to takecareof.com, use the code ROGUE50, R-O-G-U-E-5-0 for 50% off. You can also check us out at Rogue by going to roguerunning.com or following us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at Rogue Running. Until next time, we'll talk to you soon.